Please open your Bibles at um, the book of Ruth, chapter 1. I'm afraid I don't have the, the page number. It's a, a small book between Judges and First Samuel. <coughs> Ruth, chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Let's hear God's word. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took, they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with me, dealt with the dead and with me. Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should say I have a husband tonight, and should also bear sons, would you wait for them? So they were growing. Would you restrain yourself from having husbands? <coughs> no, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from falling after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. The woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again, empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Here ends the reading of God's Word. I suggest keeping your Bibles open. We'll be focusing on the conversation that Naomi had with her two daughters-in-law. I think you might find it helpful to have the text at hand. <clears throat> you may remember Robert Frost's poem, The Road Not Taken. It begins, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. You may remember it. In that poem, Frost described how he had had to make a decision while going through some woods about which of two roads to take. He thought about it for a bit and made his decision. And having decided, he said, Oh, I kept the first road for another day. But then, standing there where the roads diverged, he reflected some more. Yet, knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. Taking one road, he realized, would mean that he probably would never take the other. A decision to follow one particular path in life can mean that one may never go down another path. Sometimes that matters, sometimes it doesn't. But we're looking, we'll be looking today at a decision that mattered. A decision that both Orpah and Ruth had to make. A decision about which road to take. The road on to Bethlehem, where the living God dwelt among his people, or the road back to the land of Moab, its people and its idolatry. These women came to this point of decision because of the vigorous urgings of the third woman in the account, their mother-in-law, Naomi. We have four points today. We'll see first how Naomi argues vigorously then how Orpah reverts unsurprisingly then how Ruth clings single heartedly and fourthly through all their, all that goes before how God acts freely God acts freely so those four points that Naomi argues Orpah reverts Ruth clings God acts And then we'll have one further point of application at the end. So first, Naomi Naomi argues vigorously. We know that the last time that the narrator sets the perspective for the entire book in verse 6, where he tells us that Naomi started back to Bethlehem because she had heard that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. This is God's world. And in God's world, a famine doesn't just start or end on its own. A famine or any other event starts or ends when God chooses. God is constantly and sovereignly working in the lives of people. And that's the perspective which the narrator of the book of Ruth constantly conveys. 
We noted also last time how a consciousness of God at work pervades the conversations of the people of this book. And we see that again today. And so the narrator tells us in verse 7, Naomi heads out with her daughters-in-law accompanying her. We don't know how far they went before Naomi started talking to them about going back to Moab. But when she spoke, she spoke definitely, vigorously and persistently. Three times she urged the two of them to return to Moab. The first time quite mildly in verses 8 and 9. Go, return each to her mother's house, she said, along with good wishes for God's blessing on them. The second time in verse 11 more strongly, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Then immediately after that, for the third time, turn back, my daughters. Go. This time with lengthier and more strenuous urgings. But why, we might ask, would Naomi urge Orpah and Ruth to go back to Moab? They started down the road to Bethlehem with her. Is she not glad to have her company? Wouldn't she be glad to have them with her after she gets there? And even more seriously, why would she urge them to return to a land of unbelief in the living God? Should she not be concerned for their eternal welfare? A couple of thoughts about that. First, if you look at the end of verse 13, the final sentence of Naomi's urgings, she says to Orpah and Ruth that it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi notes that Yahweh has chosen to afflict her and her household. That that has meant that Orpah and Ruth have had to suffer grief and hardship. Naomi is sad about that. Their association with her has meant much anguish for them. And she doesn't want them to suffer any more. And so she urges them both to leave her, their mother-in-law, and each go back to the house of her mother. Verse 8. That's one thing that helps explain Naomi's urgings. God has afflicted her household. He may continue to afflict her, she suspects. And she doesn't want her daughters-in-law to have to suffer more. But even so... Why, we might ask, would she urge them to return to a land of idolatry? Should she not be concerned for their spiritual blessing and welfare? And when you look at the vigor of her arguments in verses 11 through 13, you begin to wonder, what is this godly woman doing here? Why is she talking like this? It seems very odd. But we can't read her mind But looking carefully at these verses as a whole, I think we can get a sense of what's going on here. To start with, an important thing to note from these verses is that there was a strong bond of affection between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. The three of them, Naomi, Orpah and Ruth, had been through a lot together already. And from verse 8, it's clear that Orpah and Ruth had been good wives and daughters-in-law in many ways. Notice how Naomi commends them here, expressing appreciation for their kindness to the dead and to her. There's a warm relationship there. And when she kisses them goodbye, in verse 9, it says that they lifted up their voices and wept. 
And the way that it's written indicates that they didn't just get teary-eyed. They bawled, we would say. Or they, we would say they cried their eyes out. And it happened twice in verse 9 and verse 14. The bond of affection between Naomi and her two daughters-in-law was strong. It was hard to say goodbye. They meant much to each other. Also, I think we can say that almost certainly Orpah and Ruth, because they loved Naomi, felt a strong sense of obligation to her. She was a poverty-stricken mother-in-law. And if they left her, she would have no one to accompany her on what would have been a dangerous journey for her as a woman, alone. So the two of them affirmed together in verse 10 that they intended to return with her to her people. And there's no reason to doubt that they both meant it. But strikingly, Naomi didn't give up. She immediately argued argued back in verses 11 through 13. She didn't want them to return with her merely because of natural affection or out of obligation. She knew what returning with her would mean for them. Moving to another country for the rest of their lives. Identifying fully with the people of that land. Another nation. Loving and serving the God of that nation. And especially from their viewpoint, giving up everything that was near and dear to them and more. Their loved ones, their friends, the gods of Lord. In short, giving up almost everything that would have been near and dear to them. So if we're reading the situation correctly, Naomi's main reason for arguing so strongly and persistently was to force Orpah and Ruth to count the cost. Naomi knew that natural affection and obligation wouldn't be enough to enable them to give up permanently almost everything that was near and dear to them. Naomi knew that they needed to want to do it with their whole hearts, to identify fully with the people of the true God, and to love and serve Him. The text doesn't tell us explicitly, but I think it's fair to infer that Naomi knew that only a wholehearted living faith in Yahweh would give Orpah and Ruth the strength and determination to make a permanent commitment. If their faith wasn't real, she didn't want them to come. So I think she argued strongly and persistently in order to make them count the cost. They did. They counted the cost and they arrived at two different decisions. First, in verses 14 and 15, Orpah reverts unsurprisingly. In verse 14 it says that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. That is, kissed her goodbye. The meaning becomes clear when you read the next verse. Preachers have been often been quite hard on Orpah. She's the only person in the whole book who is clearly not a servant of God. She returns to her people and her gods, verse 15. And of course her decision compares negatively with Ruth's, which we'll look at in a minute. Orpah had married into a believing family, had witnessed the dedicated life of that family, of Naomi at least, had now the opportunity to come and live among the people of Israel and identify with them, to know the God of Israel, the living God, and serve Him. But she chose to reject that path 
and return to her people and her gods. A bad decision, certainly. A decision with terrible eternal consequences, probably. But in a real sense, what should we have expected? The wonder in this story is not what Orpah did. The wonder in this story is what Ruth did. Orpah simply did what one would expect a person from an unbelieving background to do apart from sovereign grace. Now, of course, she rejected Yahweh and the salvation that comes only in His name. A sad and terrible decision. But if there's one thing that the contrast between these two women points out, it's this, that the heart of a human being is changed by the sovereign grace of God and by that grace alone. And if God the Holy Spirit does not work grace in a person's heart, that person will simply continue to be the unbeliever that he or she always has been. As we noted earlier, Orpah had apparently been a relatively good wife and daughter-in-law. And we've seen already her affection for Naomi, her tears, and her sense of obligation. The household of Naomi had been blessed to have had her. She made a terrible decision. But in a very real sense, a decision not unexpected. Orpah reverted, unsurprisingly. And that was Orpah. But it wasn't Ruth. Ruth amazingly responded very differently. Ruth clung to Naomi. And that's our next point. We see in the next few verses how Ruth clings single-heartedly. Ruth clings single-heartedly. In verse 15, the narrator contrasts quite sharply the responses of the two women. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, it says, that is, kissed her goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth wouldn't leave Naomi. She just wouldn't. She literally clung to her. The term used is very strong. The old King James Version translates the term as cleave. The same term used in Genesis 2.24, for God describes the bond of marriage. There he, said, there he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Ruth literally would not let Naomi go. And she elicited then from Naomi a final count the cost exhortation. Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth had already counted the cost probably long before. For the speech that she made in response evidences deep, thoughtful, and mature consideration. Naomi, by her urging, drew from Naomi, drew from Ruth, a most amazing speech, a most loving, gracious, comprehensive, determined speech. A winsome plea and an expression of unsurpassed dedication. Let me read it again and then I'll comment briefly. <clears throat> Verses 16 and 17. 
And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. This speech, expressed in the language of the old King James Version, has in the last 400 years become one of the most esteemed statements of love and commitment in the entire corpus of English literature. And with good reason. Let's look at it. What Ruth says to Naomi is is beautiful here partly because of how she begins. For she begins with a plea. A winsome appeal. She begs Naomi not to urge her to leave her. Entreat me not to leave you, she says, or to turn back from following after you. She entreats She pleads as a daughter to her mother. Who could resist such tender supplication? Then she makes six affirmations, six statements of resolve, six statements in which Ruth identifies her life, her death, her very being with Naomi. It's you and I, you and I, you and I. As we listen to what Ruth says here, let us notice also that she reveals to Naomi, she unfolds the depth of her commitment progressively. Each affirmation reveals progressively broader and deeper commitment. First, Ruth says that she'll go wherever Naomi goes, and that's a significant commitment. Then that she'll lodge wherever Naomi lodges. It shows a little more commitment. A little more sense of permanence. Then, stronger identification, much stronger identification. Your people should be my people. By this, Ruth gives up her Moabite identity and identifies herself with the people of Israel. Then the deepest and most important commitment of all Your God, my God. And she specifically identifies her God as Yahweh. We'll see that in a moment. Then, then in the last two affirmations, Ruth confirms that her commitment to Naomi is unto death. Where you die, I will die. And that even after Naomi is dead, for Naomi would be expected to die long before Ruth, Ruth will make sure that she, Ruth, is buried in the same place. There will I be buried. That even after Naomi is dead, there will be no return to Moab. You can hardly imagine a stronger statement of commitment. But amazingly, Ruth actually does make a stronger commitment. She ends up by swearing an oath in the name of Yahweh. May Yahweh do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. In other words, if I don't remain with you till death, 
and carry out all these solemn promises that I have made, may Yahweh strike me dead. Indeed, may Yahweh strike me with punishment worse than death, if anything but death parts you and me. The breadth and depth and comprehensiveness of Ruth's pledge are stunning, especially coming as it does from the mouth of a person from an unbelieving background. We know it already, and it's worth saying again, that what Ruth said here demonstrates as clearly as any passage in the Bible the incredible power, the life-changing power of sovereign grace. God the Holy Spirit has sovereignly worked His grace in Ruth and what marvelous fruit he has produced. There's no hint here in Ruth of self-congratulation. No subtle, I'm giving up a lot for you and what a fine person I am. There's no mixture of motives here. Ruth is single-hearted and utterly devoted. And that's from grace. Ruth's speech must have had profound effect upon Naomi. But as we've noted before, the narrator likes to to use as few words as possible. And so he says only that when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking with her. But let's be clear about how marvelous this is. This declaration of commitment is absolutely unexcelled in the entire Bible. Ruth clung single-heartedly. Then fourthly, God acts freely. God acts freely. We've noted already that behind the scenes, God is sovereignly directing the whole story of Ruth. And that that story has an important place in His great plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. We've seen the amazing commitment that Ruth made to Naomi as a result of God's work of grace in her. God the Holy Spirit sovereignly giving her a new heart, giving her faith, enabling her to repent of her sins, radically changing the direction of her life. But we shouldn't forget the other half of the story. That God did not work such grace in Orpah's life, did not give her a new heart, did not radically change her life. And it wasn't that God forgot God does not forget anyone, ever. Uncomfortable as we may feel, it's important for us to recognize that so far as we can tell, it was God's plan for Orpah not to be redeemed, for her to return to her country and its gods, presumably to receive the eternal consequences of her unbelief. This is a difficult subject, And we can't address it comprehensively today. But it's important. And if you haven't thought about it recently, let me suggest that you read Romans chapter 7 through 11. Paul's epistle to the Romans chapter 7 through 11. There's help there if you're struggling with acceptance of God's freedom to choose some and not others. The heart of what the Apostle Paul has to say in Romans is in chapter 9. Romans 9. Today I do want to draw attention to to the basic principle that underlies 
the difference between the way God dealt with Ruth and the way he dealt with Orpah. That underlying principle is this, that God is in all circumstances utterly free to act, free to act in accordance with his holy nature. God is in all circumstances utterly free to act, free to act in accordance with his holy nature. All the people in the story of Ruth, along with every other human being who ever lived, including all of us today, all the people are all people are constrained in various ways and are therefore dependent on God and on other people. No human being is at any, is at any time completely free to act as he or she wishes. Even people in positions of great political power cannot control the course of their lives. Death could take them at any time. I think we all know deep down that God is completely free to act as he wishes. If you haven't learned that yet, now's a good time. Now, of course, God does not and cannot sin. He acts in accord with his holy nature. But nothing in the least constrains him from carrying out what he has determined. The people of God in the book of Ruth know that very well about God's freedom. As we've already seen, they're very conscious of God working in the circumstances of their lives. They understand his freedom and they accept it. Naomi, for instance, mentions God in conversation no less than seven times in this chapter that we just read. And what she says shows that she understands God's freedom well. And in particular, that it is his prerogative either to bless or to afflict as he sees fit. In verses 8 and 9, Naomi wishes the blessings of Yahweh upon her two daughters-in-law. And on the other hand, she says, without railing against God, she says that Yahweh has afflicted her, and afflicted her sorely. That's in verse 13. We see it even more when Naomi finally gets to Bethlehem, and responds to the dismayed wonder of the women of Bethlehem in verse 19. Or where they say, is this Naomi? Naomi notes at that time that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with her. Verse 20. But even when Naomi speaks of dealing with God dealing with her in this hard way, Naomi actually does not descend into bitterness and cynicism. Her faith is challenged, but her faith is real. She is not destroyed by the adversity that she experiences. Ultimately, her faith is strengthened. And that becomes clear as the rest of the book unfolds. Naomi accepts who God is. This principle of God's freedom to act is a significant underlying teaching of the book of Ruth. It's important for us to understand and embrace that complete freedom to do as he fits. As he sees fit, excuse me. Well, what is this story, this story that we've been considering today, what, what does it say to us for our lives? One, one point of application here. Just about everyone who reads the book of Ruth admires Ruth's single-hearted devotion to Naomi and to God. As, I, as we think about our lives, 
as Christians, we're brought up short, at least I am, and reminded of our lack of single-heartedness. In light of Ruth's single-heartedness, I'd like us to think together about something that troubles all believers to some extent, and some to a considerable extent, that is the problem of a divided heart. The problem of a divided heart. The psalmist, Psalm 86, prays, Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. Have you ever felt like you have two hearts? A heart for God, and a heart that hangs on to something or things that draw you away from God. See it again in Psalm 119, where the author of Psalm 119 says to God, I hate the double-minded but I love you, your law. The double-minded. Does that ever describe you, ever? Do you ever find yourself wanting to please God, but also really wanting something else that draws you away from Him? James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter 1 of his epistle, also warns about doubleness. He writes about what he calls the double-minded man, literally the two-souled person. Someone with two souls. James says that man is like a wave of the sea, driven, tossed by the wind. James describes him as weak in faith and full of doubts. How many souls do you have? Do you ever find yourself like the man James described as two souled? A divided heart, a double mind, a two souled person. These are three ways of describing pretty much the same thing that is a person who is internally divided so this question for all of us today is there anything in your heart be it a sin or even something good that is coming between you and God even good things gifts from God can become idols that take our hearts away Imagine that all of us as Christians have experienced this, this doubleness, this internal tension at times. How then do we address the problem? How can we, like Ruth, be single-hearted believers with undivided hearts? Paul tells us in Romans that it's not possible to live as a Christian without dealing with things that take us away from God. Be they good things or things sinful in themselves. The term that Paul uses for this in Romans is the flesh. In Romans 8.13 he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. He says that if you don't deal with whatever is dividing your heart, that problem of the flesh, it will kill you spiritually. In other words, if you have heart issues that you're not facing, you are in spiritual peril. Well, if you have that kind of a problem, what can you do? Thankfully, Paul doesn't stop with telling us that we have a problem. He tells us what can be done about it in the very next sentence. But, he says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Notice the promise here. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So praise be to God, the problem of a divided heart can be dealt with. 
We don't have to be totally discouraged. What we do need to do is to deal with our problem in God's way. What is that way? Paul tells us that by the Spirit, that is by the grace and strength that the Holy Spirit provides us as believers, we must put our sin to death. We must kill it. And the Holy Spirit, he says, will enable us to do that. For he dwells in the heart of every true Christian. If you do that, he says, you will live. Notice again the promise. You will live. He's saying that through the grace that comes from God, we can put to death that sin, whatever it is. We can't do it by ourselves, of course. We need the Spirit of God. We need His grace to overcome that problem. If you try to do it by yourself, you will certainly fail. So, identify what is troubling you. Bring it to God in prayer. Cry to Him for His grace to enable you to overcome it. And then, by the grace and power that He gives, put to death whatever the thing is, good or evil, that is coming between you and God. Turn away from it. Don't look back. You may struggle for a time. It's not easy to get rid of an idol. But if you earnestly seek His help, He will help you. That's promised here in Romans. And that's what He has promised. He will give you victory and you will live. We've noted earlier the power of God's sovereign grace. That grace which radically changed Ruth's heart the entire orientation of her life. That same grace is at work in all true believers. Something to lay hold on. That same grace is at work in all true believers, in our hearts today. And that's what can and will enable us to put away sin and live single-heartedly for God's glory. God will enable you to overcome whatever is coming between you and Him. For that's His promise. That's His way. God gave Ruth a united heart. We're not told about her spiritual struggles. We can be sure that her undivided heart came through God's sovereign work in her, enabling her to put aside what was not right in her life and pour herself into loving God and loving her neighbor wholeheartedly. May God grant us undivided hearts. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this marvelous story of Ruth, how it warms our hearts, how it gives us joy to, to read about but yet, Lord, <clears throat> we're brought up short because we know we lack devotion to you in various ways. We don't always love our neighbor. We turn our, <clears throat> turn our eyes away from things we don't want to have to deal with. We, we fail in a thousand ways. But Lord, we thank you that <clears throat> your spirit does dwell within us. That grace is at work in us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would enable us
to identify anything which is taking our hearts away from you and replace that with increasing love, increased love for you, single-hearted devotion to you. We pray for this and we, we, we claim your promise given in Romans that we will live, that you will enable us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll sing now. Please open your psalm books and turn to Psalm 86, section B, 86B. This is the prayer of a godly believer who knows his spiritual weakness and asks God for help. Stanza 11 there, you see it says, Your way teach me, Lord. I will walk in your truth. A humble, teachable spirit. And it's clear that he knows the problem of a divided heart, for he prays in the second line, Unite my heart, your name to fear. And he's confident that God will answer his prayer. For in the very next line, he promises, My Lord and my God, with my whole heart, I'll praise. Never your name will reveal. <clears throat>